The scripture for this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you all this morning. I'm Robbie Griggs. I'm a longtime friend of Matt's, and I've been to the barn once before, visiting Matt and Rachel a few years ago, and it's delightful to be here with you this morning and to share something from God's Word. The passage we're going to look at this morning is right in the middle of an argument. Uh, and so we're, we're dropping right into the middle of um, a long and detailed thread that Paul is developing, but there are a few surprises in this passage. And what I'm going to be trying to do this morning really is to draw your attention to those surprises and things we might very quickly read over, but if we think for a little bit longer, there are some deep, surprising, mysterious things in this little passage. Sometimes life is a monotonous, soul-crushing slog. At least that's the case if you're a fan of the University of Missouri football team. (laughs) Like my friend Matt Blazer and I, I was initiated into the mysteries of Mizzou sports misery in the mid-90s. One particular game stands out. It was November 8, 1997, the fall of my junior year. Nebraska came to town 8-0, ranked number one in the AP poll. For perennial losers like Mizzou, we were having a great year. Corby Jones had led us to a 6-3 record, so hopes were high that we might not get blown out against a team that we had lost to 18 straight times, including scores 72-0 and such. And there I was, near the end of the game, standing near the goal line of the north end zone with seven seconds to go. 55 seconds earlier, Matt, were you near the goal line too? Yeah. You're what? 40-yard line. Okay. I, had, we were, I was down by the goal line. Matt was at the 40-yard line. 55 seconds earlier, Corby had thrown a touchdown pass to put us in the lead 38-31. to I was ready, ready to storm the field, pull down the goalpost, and carry it off to Harpo's. There, the ritual hacksaws would be brandished, and I would take a piece of history home to the Fidelt house. The Nebraska quarterback, Scott Frost, rolled right. His pass bounced off the chest of Shevin Wiggins and drifted toward the blessed ground of the end zone. Then, in a flash, it was drifting back up from near the ground. I couldn't quite see what had happened and fell again toward the turf as Nebraska player Matt Davison dove and scooped the ball into his arms. Touchdown, Nebraska. We lost the game in overtime. 
As I walked back along Providence to the fight out house with my friends Alec and Nathan, I said, that was it. That was our chance. Mizzou sports is good training for life. It's good training for what the great fantasy writer J.R.R. Tolkien called the long defeat. Reflecting on human mortality and his own experiences of World War I, Tolkien saw that one of the persistent mysteries we face in life is that though we have victories here and there, often these victories are conditioned by bigger, deeper losses. And in the end, there is death, which comes for us all and which we all must face alone. Seen from that vantage, life is a long defeat. Like Mizzou football, a monotonous and at times soul-crushing slog. The curious, and I would say maybe most surprising thing about the Christian faith is that this reality is given its full due. Following Christ is no guarantee of a smooth, pleasant, incident-free journey through life, because there is no such thing. Rather, we all face defeats snatched from the jaws of victory, and even if we're blessed and these defeats are relatively few, their death awaits us at the end of our lives. Yet there is much more to say. If it is surprising that God does not entirely remove the defeats of this life, it is even more surprising that He blesses us in the midst of them. That's the thing we'll be considering in this sermon. Our God is a God who delights in surprises, who delights in blessing us in the midst of our apparent defeats. And He does this for a very particular reason. He does this so that th when things are at their worst, we will come to expect the unexpected. He does this so that we will trust Him. So we're going to look at three surprises in this passage. And the first one seems kind of straightforward, but as I said earlier, there are depths. Let me pray for us as we get into those depths. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are beyond our immediate comprehension. And therefore, Lord, you are beyond our immediate control. And that means that you are free to love us as we need your love. And you delight to show yourself good in the midst of our circumstances. We pray, Lord, now that you would help us to receive what you have for us from your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, the first big surprise in this passage is that Abraham believed God. Abraham. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 if you've got a Bible in front of you. If not, I'll read it for you. We're picking this up in the middle of an argument, as I said, and Paul says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so then know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who was Abraham and what did he believe? Well, here's where the surprises start. Abraham was an old man with no children when God sought him out and sent him toward the promised land. God promised that though Abraham and Sarah had no children, he would make them into a great nation and he would give them a land. And literally the first thing we hear about Abraham and Sarah is that Sarah was barren. 
before we even get into Genesis 12, in Genesis 11.30, the very first detail we get from this story is that Sarah was barren, that she could not have children. And surprisingly, Abraham says, all right, we'll start packing our bags. Of course, the book of Genesis is not written to Abraham and his contemporaries. It's written to the Israelites as they are preparing to enter the promised land. And the story that Genesis and the rest of the first five books of the Bible tells is essentially a story of all the ways that this promise that God makes is under threat. And yet, time and again, despite the ups and downs of circumstances and unbelief, various leaders put their trust in God, and the people put their trust in God, and God delivers. As Paul reads this story, he concludes something rather surprising still. It's not the people who are the physical descendants necessarily who are the sons of Abraham. Rather, it's those of us who are crazy in a very particular way, like Abraham was crazy. Faith is like when you're an old man and you're facing the end of your life and someone comes and says to you, you're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, but through this child, I am going to bless the whole world. Christians are the kind of people who believe that kind of crazy thing. It's those who believe as Abraham did who are children of Abraham. In short, what characterizes Christians first and foremost is this surprising trust in a God who promises outlandish, crazy, unbelievable things. And this trust in this God inevitably takes on the contours of Abraham's own trust. It is exercised in the darkest of circumstances against the longest of odds. It expects the unexpected because God is the one who is at work. He is the one who gives the barren couple a child and in that way creates a nation to bless the world. This is, of course, super annoying for at least a couple reasons. First, it takes control for the most important things in life completely out of our hands. Abraham and Sarah had to wait a long time before God came through and delivered the child that He promised. In the meantime, as they were waiting, the stakes of childlessness were rising. And, you know, we're, we know all about these things these days. We know all about the grief of not being, to have a child, being able to have a child. And we experience that primarily as an interpersonal, familial grief. But one thing about the ancient world is that um, to be in a family was to be a part of the family business. And then not to have a child was to see the end, not only of your family, but all of the hopes that you have for your people. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. And then he just removes himself 
from their lives and occasionally pops back in and reminds them, I'm going to give you a child. And in that process, they have to wait. At one point, to manage the risks of childlessness, Sarah gave Hagar, her servant, as a wife and surrogate to Abraham. Of course, God made it clear that this contradicted his way of working, so they had to wait and trust longer, this time with the added grief of a divided family. The point seems clear enough. God intends for us to depend on Him alone for the deepest things of life. And that can be super annoying. We don't know when He will deliver. The deeper annoyance, though, is that we don't always know whether God is good and whether or not He's going to demonstrate His goodness in a way that we find acceptable. I mean, even if God is the only one who can handle the truly deepest things in life, can we trust Him to do that in a way that we will recognize as good? This is the more troubling question. Even if we have little choice but to trust in God, is He trustworthy? thought a lot about this issue of whether or not someone is trustworthy. That's partly because, like a lot of people, I was deeply betrayed by one of my parents as a boy. And naturally, I began assuming that adults and people in general are not trustworthy unless proven otherwise. Of course, this sort of reflexive mistrust has its own problems. One of them is that we need other people to grow especially in those areas where we can't or shouldn't trust our own opinions about ourselves. I had to face this recently as I started playing tennis again. My youngest son, George, who's 11, almost 12, started playing a couple years ago. And last summer we went out to hit, and I realized that if I didn't start getting serious about my game very soon, I was not going to be able to stay on the court with George. So I got to work. And here's where my problem comes in. Though I played varsity tennis in high school and I have a decent technical and strategic foundation in the game, I couldn't see myself play. I knew I needed a coach to help me, but who? Well, there were two coaches in the clinic I was in. One of them was relentlessly nice. The other was relentlessly frank. The nice coach would say 20 positive things for every one negative thing. The frank coach would say 20 negative things for every one positive thing. I loved the frank coach. I'd hit a serve and she'd say, that's weird. I'd respond, what do you mean? And she would point out some tiny detail that I was doing that was hindering my technique. And she did this regularly, in the most precise and brutal fashion, without fear that she would offend me. So after a couple months, I thought that my right arm might fall off from my bad technique, so I asked the Frank coach if she would take me on for private lessons. I chose her because she had demonstrated that she was concerned about, not about whether or not I liked her, or whether or not what she said was pleasant, 
she was concerned for me to improve. And so she told me the truth. She even risked our relationship at times to tell me something I did not want to hear. This leads us to our second and biggest surprise in this passage, which has to do with God's deep truthfulness and therefore His deep goodness and then ultimately His deep trustworthiness. Look at verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This is where the big surprise is in this passage. When God told Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him, he had the good news of Jesus in mind. Did you see that? The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel in advance, saying to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What Paul is saying is this. God sees, God knows our deepest needs. From the very beginning of his relationship with the church, he knew that we needed Him utterly and completely. And so when He gave these crazy promises to Abraham, He saw the trajectory of those promises thousands of years later. And He knew that the way He was going to solve our deepest separation from Him and our deepest separation from each other was to put us in a position of absolute and utter dependence on His goodness. Just as Abraham, who had no children, needed to depend on God's promise, so the Gentiles, who did not know God, needed to depend on the fulfillment of that promise. And all of this is reflective of God's deep goodness and trustworthiness. What Paul is saying is mysterious. What he's saying is that underneath the narrative of every single one of our lives is a very basic thing. And that is God is oriented towards our goodness. And so he tells us the truth. He tells us that we need him. And that without Him, we are completely and utterly lost. We know that God is deeply trustworthy because this was His grand plan all along. Now, this sounds pretty straightforward, but that, that's only the case if we ignore the context. Abraham and Sarah had to depend on God for a long time through many sorrows and trials. Israel endured even more the split of the northern and southern kingdoms, the exile, the ups and downs of life under pagan rulers and governors. All the while, God's people have seen their enemies flourish. They have experienced injustice and oppression. They have waited for God to come good on His promises and to deliver them. And so, 
around the time that Paul is writing, a number of Jews are wondering, is God good and how is he going to demonstrate his goodness? And what Paul says is that God demonstrates his deep goodness and trustworthiness in the cross of Jesus Christ. How do we know that God is good? Well, it's not only that he tells us the truth. It's that he takes on the cost of the truth himself. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, 25 and 26. He says, the gospel was to show God's righteousness. Have you ever thought about that, that God needs to prove himself? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying when we look around at the world, we don't see justice. We don't see righteousness. We don't see people getting what they deserve. And that raises a question for us. Is God righteous? Is He good? And what Paul says is that the gospel was to show God's righteousness. It was to demonstrate His trustworthiness and His goodness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And here's the big kicker of the surprise. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God tells us, yes, I see the lack of righteousness and I'm the only one who can deal with it. And I'm going to do that in my Son. Over a decade ago, I had the privilege of preaching at Matt's ordination service. I start off the sermon by joking that Matt and I had known each other for 13 years and that we had been friends for seven, which was true. At the time, it struck me that we were even friends at all because in college we were both pretty immature and we were very different people. So I was surprised at how God had grown us up and brought us together. Now the thing that stands out to me is how good God has remained to Matt and Rachel in our circle of friends over the last decade. I see it in how God brought Rachel and Matt here to the barn. I see it in how God brought Rachel and Matt through cancer twice. I see it in how God has guided Rachel and Matt through the ordinary joys and heartaches of loving a family, friends, a congregation. I see it now in how God has brought Micah into their family. It's easy to look back and see God's goodness. It's hard sometimes to look around or to look forward and see God's goodness. That's why Paul repeats himself with a slight variation in this passage in verse 9, and that's the third surprise. He says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. When we look around or we look forward, the uncertainties and challenges we face loom large. That's why it's so important to look back, as Paul does here in Galatians, and see God's deep goodness and trustworthiness. Just as it was His plan all along to bless the whole world through Abraham's heir, Jesus Christ, so it is His plan to bless His children as we follow Him now. Note how Paul says it. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
We're not blessed in the absence of hardship and heartache, but we're blessed through the challenges of life. You see, God's aim is not to change our circumstances. His aim is to change us. And so, even in the midst of this long defeat, God encourages us and draws us forward. He demonstrates His goodness over and over. We are blessed because God is good and we are His children. When Paul talks about blessing, he has a pretty expansive concept in mind. It includes the idea that because we're God's children, we are part of God's family. And what that means is that we can be confident that He is growing us up in the family business. That He, through the circumstances and trials of life, is preparing us for mature service within His household. But it also means that because God is at work now, we can be confident of His ultimate blessing in the future. The glimpses of God's victories now give us confidence for God's ultimate victory in Jesus' return and in our resurrection from the dead. Since it's Father's Day, I'm going to break a cardinal rule of preaching and use more than one sports story to illustrate this. I mentioned at the start of the sermon that being a Mizzou football fan is good for training, good training for life because it helps us see that life is fighting the long defeat. Well, that seemed obvious to me walking home from the Nebraska game in 1997, but it was not the whole story. What I did not know then, what I could not know, is that the late 90s were the beginning of the end for Nebraska football hegemony. I did not know then that four years later we would hire Gary Pinkle, a now legendary Mizzou football coach. I did not know then that there was a 14-year-old boy named Brad Smith who six years later would score four touchdowns and lead us to victory over Nebraska, breaking our 24-game losing streak. In the midst of the long defeat that is this life, God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. And despite the waiting and the grief and the longing that we regularly face, He continues to bless us. So that means that we look back in order to look forward. And when we look forward, we can be confident that in the end, we can trust Him. He is good. And no matter what, we will be blessed because we are His children. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, for the ways that You bring people into our lives to remind us of that goodness. I pray, God, that as we face the various challenges of life, that You would continue to remind us of how You have been good to us in the particulars of our lives, but most fundamentally in the cross and resurrection of Jesus in whom we are now blessed. So Lord, would You preserve us? Would You give us hope that comes only from You? We ask these things in the power of Your Spirit and for the sake of Jesus. Amen.